Section 39 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording by Andrew Dunscombe. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hector Berlioz, 1803-1869 To the concert-goer the name Hector Berlioz calls up a series of vast and magnificent whirlwinds of vocal and orchestral sonority. The thoughts of scores that sound and look imposingly complex to the eyes and ears of both the educated and uneducated in the composer's art. We have a vision of close pages embodying the most unequivocal and drastic of musical realism. The full audacity and mastery of a certain sort of genius are represented in his vast works. They bespeak too the combative musician and reformer. Berlioz took the kingdom of music by violence. His chef d'oeuvre do not all say to us as much as he meant them to say, not as much as they all uttered twenty years ago. There is much clay as well as gold in them, but such tremendous products of his energy and intellect as the Requiem, the Te Deum, the Damnation of Faust, his best descriptive symphonies such as the Romeo and Juliet, are yet eloquent to the public and to the critical-minded. His best was so very good that his worst, weighed as a matter of principle or execution, regarded as music or programme music, can be excused. Berlioz's actual biography is a long tale of storm and stress. Not only was he slow in gaining appreciation while he lived, full comprehension of his power was not granted him till after his energetic life was over. Recognition in his own country is incomplete today. He was born in 1803, near picturesque Grenoble, in the little town of Cotte-Saint-André, the son of an excellent country doctor. Sent to Paris to study medicine, he became a musician against his father's wish, and in lieu of the allowance that his father promptly withdrew, the young man lived by engaging in the chorus of the gymnase and by catching at every straw for subsistence. He became a regular music student of the conservatory under the admirable Lasseur und Reicher, quitted the conservatory in disgust at its pedantry in 1825, and lived and advanced in musical study as best he could for a considerable time. His convictions in art were founded largely on the rock of Gluck, Mozart, Beethoven and Weber. And however modern and however widely his work departs from such academic models, Berlioz never forswore a certain allegiance to these great and serene masters. He returned to the conservatory, studied hard, gained the Prix de Rome, gradually took a prominent place among Parisian composers and was as enthusiastically the subject of a cult as was Wagner. His concerts and the production of his operas encountered shameful cabals. His strongest works were neglected or ill-served. To their honour, German musicians understood him, Schumann and Liszt in especial. Only in Germany today are his colossal operas heard. The Italian Paganini showed a generous interest in his struggles. 
Russia and Austria too admired him, while his compatriots hissed. His career was one of endless work, disappointments, brief successes, battles, hopes and despairs. Personally too, it was full of the happiness and unhappiness of the artistic temperament. It was between the two periods of his conservatory life that he endured his chief sentimental misfortune, his falling in love and finally marrying Henrietta Smithson. Miss Smithson was a young English actress playing Shakespearean roles in France with a passing success. She was exquisitely lovely. Delaroche has painted her spiritual beauty in his Ophelia. The marriage was the typically unfortunate artist match, and she became a paralytic invalid for years. After her death, tours in Germany and elsewhere, new works, new troubles, enthusiasms and disappointments filled up the remainder of the composer's days. He returned to his beloved Dauphiné, war-worn and almost as one who has outlived life. In his provincial retreat, he composed the huge operatic duology The Trojans at Carthage and The Taking of Troy, turning once more to Virgil, his early literary love. Neither of them is often heard now, any more than his amazing Benvenuto Cellini. Their author died in Dauphiné in 1869, weary, disenchanted but conscious that he would be greater in the eyes of a coming generation than ever he had been during his harassed life. Berlioz's literary remains are valuable as criticisms and their personal matter is of brisk and varied charm. His intense feeling for Shakespeare influenced his whole aesthetic life. He was extremely well read his most unchecked tendency to romanticism was balanced by a fine feeling for the classics. He loved the greater Greek and Latin writers. His autobiography is a perfect picture of himself emotionally and exhibits his wide aesthetic nature. His letters are equally faithful as portraiture. He possessed a distinctively literary style. He tells us how he fell in love twice, thrice, records the disgraceful cabals and intrigues against his professional success and explains how a landscape affected his nerves. He is excellent reading, apparently without taking much pains to be so. Vivacity, wit, sincerity are salient traits. In his volume of musical essays entitled A Travers Chant, an untranslatable title which may be paraphrased Memoirs of Music and Musicians, are superior appreciations of musicians and interpreters and performances in opera house and concert hall expressed with grace and taste in the feuilletonist's best manner. In the Journal des Débats, year by year, he wrote himself down indisputably among the great French critics, and he never misused his critical post to make it a lever for his own advantage. His great treatise on orchestration is a standard work not displaced by Javert or more recent authorities. He was not only a musical intelligence of enormous capacity, he offers perhaps as typical an embodiment of the French artistic temperament as can be pointed out.
The Italian Race as Musicians and Auditors, from Berlioz's Autobiography. It appears, however, so at least I am assured, that the Italians do occasionally listen. But at any rate, music to the Milanese, no less than to the Neapolitans, Romans, Florentines and Genoese, means nothing but an air, a duet or a trio well sung. For anything beyond this they feel simply aversion or indifference. Perhaps these antipathies are mainly due to the wretched performance of their choruses and orchestras, which effectually prevents their knowing anything good outside the beaten track they have so long followed. Possibly, too, they may to a certain extent understand the flights of men of genius, if these latter are careful not to give too rude a shock to their rooted predilections. The great success of William Tell at Florence supports this opinion, and even Spontini's sublime Vestale obtained a series of brilliant representations at Naples some twenty-five years ago. Moreover, in those towns which are under the Austrian rule, you will see the people rush after a military band and listen with avidity to the beautiful German melodies, so unlike their usual insipid cavatinas. Nevertheless, in general, it is impossible to disguise the fact that the Italians as a nation really appreciate only the material effects of music and distinguish nothing but its exterior forms. Indeed, I am much inclined to regard them as more inaccessible to the poetical side of art and to any conceptions at all above the common than any other European nation. To the Italians, music is a sensual pleasure and nothing more. For this most beautiful form of expression, they have scarcely more respect than for the culinary art. In fact, they like music which they can take in at first hearing, without reflection or attention, just as they would do with a plate of macaroni. Now, we French, mean and contemptible musicians as we are, although we are no better than the Italians when we furiously applaud a trill or a chromatic scale by the last new singer and miss altogether the beauty of some grand recitative or animated chorus, yet at least we can listen, and if we do not take in a composer's ideas, it is not our fault. Beyond the Alps, on the contrary, people behave in a manner so humiliatingly both to art and to artists whenever any representation is going on, that I confess I would as soon sell pepper and spice at a grocer's in the Rue Saint-Denis as write an opera for the Italians. Nay, I would sooner do it. Added to this, they are slaves to routine and to fanaticism to a degree one hardly sees nowadays, even at the academy. The slightest unforeseen innovation, whether in melody, harmony, rhythm or instrumentation, puts them into a perfect fury, so much so that the dilettanti of Rome on the appearance of Rossini's Barbiere di Sevilla, which is Italian enough in all conscience, were ready to kill the young maestro for having the insolence to do anything unlike Paisiello. But what renders all hope of improvement quite chimerical and tempts one to believe that the musical feeling of the Italians is a mere necessary result of their organization, the opinion both of Gall and Spurzheim is their love for all that is dancing, brilliant, glittering and gay, 
to the utter neglect of the various passions by which the characters are animated and the confusion of time and place, in a word, of good sense itself. Their music is always laughing, and if by chance the composer in the course of the drama permits himself for one moment not to be absurd, he at once hastens back to his prescribed style, his melodious roulades and gruppetti, his trills and contemptible frivolities, either for voice or orchestra, and these, succeeding so abruptly to something true to life, have an unreal effect and give the opera seria all the appearance of a parody or caricature. I could quote plenty of examples from famous works, but speaking generally of these artistic questions, it is not from Italy that we get these stereotyped conventional forms adopted by so many French composers, resisted by Cherubim and Spontini alone among the Italians, though rejected entirely by the Germans. What well-organised person with any sense of musical expression could listen to a quartet in which four characters, animated by totally conflicting passions, should successively employ the same melodious phrase to express such different words as these O oh, toi que j'adore, quelle terreur me glace, mon cœur bat de plaisir, la fureur me transporte. To suppose that music is a language so vague that the natural inflections of fury will serve equally well for fear, joy and love only proves the absence of that sense which to others makes the varieties of expression in music as incontestable a reality as the existence of the sun. I regard the course taken by Italian composers as the inevitable result of the instincts of the public which react more or less on the composers themselves. The famous snuff-box treachery from the autobiography. Now for another intrigue, still more cleverly contrived, the black depths of which I hardly dare fathom. I incriminate no one. I simply give the naked facts, without the smallest commentary, but with scrupulous exactness. General Bernard, having himself informed me that my requiem was to be performed on certain conditions, I was about to begin my rehearsals when I was sent for by the director of the Beaux-Arts. You know, said he, that Habeneck has been commissioned to conduct all the great official music festivals. Come, good, thought I, here is another tile for my devoted head. It is true that you are now in the habit of conducting the performance of your works yourself, but Habeneck is an old man, another tile, and I happen to know that he will be deeply hurt if he does not preside at your requiem. What terms are you on with him? What terms? We have quarrelled. I hardly know why. For three years he has not spoken to me. I am not aware of his motives, and indeed have not cared to ask. He began by rudely refusing to conduct one of my concerts. His behaviour towards me has been as inexplicable as it is uncivil. However, as I see plainly that he wishes on the present occasion to figure at Marshal d'Ambremont's ceremony, and as it would evidently be agreeable to you, I consent to give up the baton to him, on condition that I have at least one full rehearsal. Agreed, replied the director. I will let him know about it. The rehearsals were accordingly conducted with great care. 
Habeneck spoke to me as if our relations with each other had never been interrupted and all seemed likely to go well. The day of the performance arrived in the church of the Invalides, before all the princes, peers and deputies, the French press, the correspondence of foreign papers and an immense crowd. It was absolutely essential for me to have a great success. A moderate one would have been fatal and a failure would have annihilated me altogether. Now, listen attentively. The various groups of instruments in the orchestra were tolerably widely separated, especially the four brass bands introduced in the tuba mirum, each of which occupied a corner of the entire orchestra. There is no pause between the dies irae and the tuba mirum, but the pace of the latter movement is reduced to half what it was before. At this point the whole of the brass enters, first altogether and then in passages answering and interrupting, each a third higher than the last. It is obvious that it is of the greatest importance that the four beats of the new tempo should be distinctly marked, or else the terrible explosion which I had so carefully prepared with combinations and proportions never attempted before or since, and which, rightly performed, gives such a picture of the last judgment as I believe is destined to live would be a mere enormous and hideous confusion. With my habitual mistrust, I had stationed myself behind Habeneck, and turning my back on him overlooked the group of kettle drums which he could not see when the moment approached for them to take part in the general melee. There are perhaps one thousand bars in my requiem, precisely in that of which I have just been speaking, when the movement is retarded and the wind instruments burst in with their terrible flourish of trumpets, in fact, just in the one bar where the conductor's motion is absolutely indispensable, Habeneck puts down his baton, quietly takes out his snuff-box and proceeds to take a pinch of snuff. I always had my eye in his direction and instantly turned rapidly on one heel and springing forward before him, I stretched out my arm and marked the four great beats of the new movement. The orchestras followed me each in order. I conducted the piece to the end and the effect which I had longed for was produced. When at the last words of the chorus Habeneck saw that the tuba mirum was saved, he said, what a cold perspiration I have been in. Without you, we should have been lost. Yes, I know, I answered, looking fixedly at him. I did not add another word. Had he done it on purpose? Could it be possible that this man had dared to join my enemy, the director and Cherubini's friends, in plotting and attempting such rascality? I don't wish to believe it, but I cannot doubt it. God forgive me if I am doing the man injustice. On Gluck, from the Autobiography. Of all the ancient composers, Gluck has, I believe, the least to fear from the incessant revolutions of art. He sacrificed nothing, either to the caprices of singers, the exigencies of fashion, or the inveterate routine with which he had to contend on his arrival in France after his protracted struggles with the Italian theatres. Doubtless his conflicts at Naples, Milan and Parma, instead of weakening him, had increased his strength by revealing its full extent to himself. 
for in spite of the fanaticism then prevalent in our artistic customs, he broke these miserable trammels and trod them underfoot with the greatest ease. True, the clamour of the critics once succeeded in forcing him into a reply, but it was the only indiscretion with which he had to reproach himself, and thenceforth, as before, he went straight to his aim in silence. We all know what that aim was. We also know that it was never given to any man to succeed more fully. With less conviction or less firmness, it is probable that, notwithstanding his natural genius, his degenerate works would not have long survived those of his mediocre rivals now completely forgotten. But truth of expression, purity of style, and grandeur of form belong to all time. Gluck's fine passages will always be fine. Victor Hugo is right. The heart never grows old. On Bach, from the autobiography. You will not, my dear Demarest, expect an analysis from me of Bach's great work. Such a task would quite exceed my prescribed limits. Indeed, the movement performed at the Conservatoire three years ago may be considered the type of the author's style throughout the work. The Germans profess an unlimited admiration for Bach's recitatives, but their peculiar characteristic necessarily escaped me as I did not understand the language and was unable to appreciate their expression. Whoever is familiar with our musical customs in Paris must witness, in order to believe, the attention, respect and even reverence with which a German public listens to such a composition. Everyone follows the words on the book with his eyes, not a movement among the audience, not a murmur of praise or blame, not a sound of applause. They are listening to a solemn discourse, they are hearing the gospel sung, they are attending divine service rather than a concert. And really such music ought to be thus listened to. They adore Bach and believe in him without supposing for a moment that his divinity could ever be called into question. A heretic would horrify them. He is forbidden even to speak of him. God is God and Bach is Bach. Some days after the performance of Bach's chef d'oeuvre, the Singing Academy announced Grounds taught Jesu. This is another sacred work, a holy book, the worshippers of which are, however, mainly to be found in Berlin, whereas the religion of Bach is professed throughout the north of Germany. Music as an Aristocratic Art from the Autobiography Dramatic art in the time of Shakespeare was more appreciated by the masses than it is in our day by those nations which lay most claim to possess a feeling for it. Music is essentially aristocratic. It is a daughter of noble race, such as princes only can dower nowadays. It must be able to live poor and unmated rather than form a mesalliance. The beginning of a grand passion from the autobiography. I have now come to the grand drama of my life, but I shall not relate all its painful details. 
It is enough to say that an English company came over to perform Shakespeare's plays, then entirely unknown in France, at the Odeon. I was present at the first performance of Hamlet, and there, in the part of Ophelia, I saw Miss Smithson, whom I married five years afterward. I can only compare the effect produced by her wonderful talent, or rather her dramatic genius, on my imagination and heart, with the convulsion produced on my mind by the work of the great poet whom she interpreted. It is impossible to say more. This sudden and unexpected revelation of Shakespeare overwhelmed me. The lightning flash of his genius revealed the whole heaven of art to me, illuminating its remotest depths in a single flash. I recognised the meaning of real grandeur, real beauty and real dramatic truth, and I also realised the utter absurdity of the ideas circulated by Voltaire in France about Shakespeare and the pitiful pettiness of our old poetic school, the offspring of pedagogues and frères ignorantins. But the shock was too great, and it was a long while before I recovered from it. I became possessed by an intense, overpowering sense of sadness that in my then sickly, nervous state produced a mental condition adequately to describe which would take a great physiologist. I could not sleep. I lost my spirits. My favourite studies became distasteful to me, and I spent my time wandering aimlessly about Paris and its environs. During that long period of suffering, I can only recall four occasions on which I slept, and then it was the heavy, death-like sleep produced by complete physical exhaustion. These were one night when I had thrown myself down on some sheaves in a field near Vigeuif, one day in a meadow in the neighbourhood of Sceaux, once on the snow on the banks of the frozen Seine near Neuilly, and lastly, on a table in a café du Cardinal at the corner of the Boulevard des Italiens and the Rue Richelieu, where I slept for five hours to the terror of the garçons, who thought I was dead and were afraid to come near me. It was on my return from one of these wanderings, in which I must have seemed like one seeking his soul, that my eyes fell on Moore's Irish melodies lying open on my table at the song beginning, When He Who Adores Thee. I seized my pen, and then and there wrote the music to that heart-rendering farewell which is published at the end of my collection of songs, Irlande, under the title Elegie. This is the only occasion on which I have been able to vent any strong feeling in music while still under its influence, and I think that I have rarely reached such intense truth of musical expression combined with so much realistic power of harmony. On Theatrical Managers in Relation to Art, from the Autobiography. I have often wondered why theatrical managers everywhere have such a marked predilection for what genuine artists, cultivated minds, and even a certain section of the public itself persist in regarding as very poor manufacture, short-lived productions, the handiwork of which is as valueless as the raw material itself. Not as though platitudes always succeeded better than good works. Indeed, the contrary is often the case. Neither is it that careful compositions entail more expense than shoddy. 
it is often just the other way. Perhaps it arises simply from the fact that the good works demand the care, study, attention and in certain cases even the mind, talent and inspiration of everyone in the theatre, from the manager down to the prompter. The others, on the contrary, being made especially for lazy, mediocre, superficial, ignorant and silly people, naturally find a great many supporters. Well, a manager likes above everything whatever brings him in amiable speeches and satisfied looks from his underlings. He likes things that require no learning and disturb no accepted ideas or habits, which gently go with the stream of prejudice and wound no self-love because they reveal no incapacity. In a word, things which do not take too long to get up. End of section 39 Recording by Andrew Dunscombe, Lucerne.